Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Remember the days when you could lose a presidential election just by screaming like an idiot? And now we just have people swearing uh, and crowd surfing, apparently. I miss the good old days. I do I do find myself <laughs> longing to go back to when times were simple, Nick. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to get to swear on this episode. Sanctioned swearing. Oh, you guys are going to be in for it. It's going to be good. Put the kids to bed now. Strap in, folks. It's not going to be that bad. Anyways, hi guys, it's uh, Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire. Music isn't stopping, so please stop doing that. Um, uh, yeah, Barstool Politics. Uh, that's me, I already said who I was. I am joined, uh, as always, by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Bark from Keene State College. Hi guys. Hey Nick. Hey Nick. Hi. Uh, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. Uh, if you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, anything like that, want to see what we're up to, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, uh, the thing I said last time, Apple Podcasts, yes. uh, Spotify, um, uh, SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting flat, uh, platforms. Uh, review us, share us, like us through there. We always appreciate that support. Uh, and then we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which uh, if you haven't been here, uh, Predicted is a real money political prediction market pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Um, if you guys have tuned in recently, we've been uh, kind of keeping tabs on the markets for uh, democratic potential democratic uh, presidential nominees uh, and seeing what's, what's going on there. And now Republican nominees, now yeah. Republican nominees. So make sure you buy into that. Cause I'm positive. They'll, they'll, they'll win. Mark Sanford is a good buy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Real cheap. Now I think. Um, what's great for our listeners who uh, use the uh, promo link when opening up a new account, you'll receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. Uh, so, for example, if you open up a $20 account, predict it will match that $20, giving you $40 to use. Uh, like I said, just use the promo link predicted.org slash promo slash barstool Paul 2020 to give that a shot. Thanks, predict it. Yeah. You're nice. Um, Lots of weird topics, and we're going to do Phil's campaign corner again. Oh yes. Um, uh, I, I told the guys this before we before we started recording. Uh, we're taping on Wednesday, which is the eighteenth eighteenth, yeah, anniversary yeah, of uh, the nine eleven uh, attacks. Um, and we're going to kind of talk about uh, John Bolton uh, being fired uh, and. You know, the Taliban apparently coming to Camp David or potentially coming to Camp David pretty close to the 9-11 anniversary. Um, I I just I I feel the need for whatever reason to talk about this every year for a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. And just so much of what 
we've been talking about over the past few weeks and so much of what we've talked about during the whatever it is at this point over two years of this podcast has been shaped by a single event um and our foreign policy has been you know irrevocably altered by that um and it's just it seems like such an important thing uh and then you look on twitter and you look at the you know, presidential candidates and pundits and things like that and it's just vitriol and bullshit and it's I, I don't know. Like for me, like that is still a very, I, I don't want to say raw, but it's still, it's still very much in the forefront of my mind. It's a defining of, moment. It's right? a very, yeah, yeah, defining moment for me personally. I think for, you know, my generation, the people who are roughly around my, my age and, and for, for you guys as well, it just, it was such a singular moment that kind of pushed us out of this, state or perceived state of invulnerability mm -hmm. and everything that has happened since then has just been in my opinion a complete quagmire that, that has continued to kind of break down that that facade um yeah i don't i don't know like yeah. how do you guys feel about it this this far it's almost 20 years at I this know. point it, and it, it feels, feels like it was yesterday <laughs> I mean, phil, yeah i think about uh you know phil we've in the past talked about generational paradigms and uh, roskin's uh you know international relations scholar talked about that there are these critical events that define foreign policy in a generation and we're we're living in the the post 9-11 generation and uh but for our students it's a very different thing where they're so young they're not thinking about this uh I don't know, Phil, what's, uh, what was your sense on campus today for, you know, the 9-11 memorial? Uh, you know, I, it didn't, it didn't even say, I only taught one class, but, uh, you know, it came up very briefly, but it doesn't seem to be, again, you know, for, for our students, this is, they were either basically not born or like two years old. But yeah, I mean, I, somebody I saw online today, uh, talking about how, um, uh, the idea that essentially modern American politics, if you, if you want to understand modern American politics, it all basically traces back to Watergate and September 11th, right? Those are the two sort of defining events for how we view politics. And I think that's really true, right? Our, our approach to, you know, a lot of, we're talking about divisiveness and all of that, but, it, but also sort of our, you know, rethinking our role in the world and, um, yeah, 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 no, it's a, it's a significant event. Although as time goes by, it becomes less and less relevant in terms of like the day-to-day -day events of it, even mm -hmm. though it is, is a, a dramatically important event for our foreign policy, how we conduct ourselves and how we as individuals understand the world around us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it was still better. I, I, I think if, if the political climate that we have today, if we had that, then I'm not sure it would be, there was a very brief period after nine 11 where there was a general kind of coalescence around, you know, a rally around the flag effect and, and a coalescence of, uh, American society to, you know, band together and, and support one another. I'm not sure we would see that now. I think as much as, like you said, Watergate and, and September 11th were defining moments in, in American history and foreign policy, especially not foreign policy, but, um, American history, I think that the advent of, you know, the, the smartphone era and social media has been, uh, almost, a, an import, almost of an important, uh, inflection point mm -hmm. as those two, uh, events at this point, maybe it, it, on a, a, um, uh, a longer, uh, scale. Um, 
But I, I think that what that's done to our political discourse and ability to kind of see past the differences that we did have at that particular time, um, I don't think we would have that ability to to do that anymore, which is really, really scary. It, it is. Although I will. I mean, if you think about the the George Bush Al Gore election, I mean, that was divisive. Right. And so and it was, you know, 9-11 still brought us together after that. So there, there's some hope. But no, I, I think you're right that social media technology has changed the way that we interact with with the political system. Yeah, definitely. I, I think even in that situation, if you had if you had a, if you had Twitter or something in that situation, um, you would you there was a, a, a finite um, moment in time where the vitriol and anger kind of stayed. And then after that, it wasn't necessarily accepted by everyone, but that kind of faded into into memory and became realistically a, a historical footnote. And now you just have the ability to constantly pick at that wound mm -hmm. all the time. And there's never an ability to kind of let things subside. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I don't know. I like I don't have mm -hmm. I don't want this to turn into a big negative no, no, thing no, no, about no. how we would handle, you know, inevitably there will be something new that happens. and It'll be interesting to see how the country confronts that. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Um, regardless, that's kind of going into. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's been yeah 18 years in Afghanistan at this point. And the Taliban are coming to dinner or right. were apparently almost coming to dinner. Yes. So, <laughs> so it was interesting. We both both John Bolton and the Taliban were on the wrong end of a presidential tweet this week. On Saturday, Trump tweeted that he was calling off peace negotiations with the Taliban after a U.S. service member was, member was killed in a suicide attack in Afghanistan. In the tweet, Trump revealed that he was scheduled to hold a controversial secret meeting at Camp David Sunday with the Taliban leadership. The U.S. has been negotiating with the Taliban on a deal to bring an end to U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. But on Monday, Trump said negotiations with the Taliban are over. President Trump also ended his relationship with National Security Advisor John Bolton. Bolton was informed via tweet that, quote, his services are no longer needed at the White House. It was no secret that Trump and Bolton did not see eye to eye, but his firing still caught many, including everyone on this podcast, by surprise. These developments raise all sorts of important questions. For instance, should representatives of the Taliban have been invited to Camp David around the anniversary of 9-11? If negotiations with the Taliban are over, where does that? what does that mean for the future of U.S. policy in Afghanistan? And the Bolton firing, while not all that surprising, is equally vexing. Phil, it's hard to think of a week that has had more consequential foreign policy developments. Where, where do you want to start? Um, I mean, I, I don't know. Let's start with let's start by talking about Bolton. I mean, this seems yeah. like something as surprising as it was, you know, after the initial news sort of set in, the three of us were texting about it. Um, it it's all as sort of surprising as it was. It's also not not surprising, yeah. right? Like right. from the beginning, <laughs> this was a doomed relationship. Uh, Trump, who, I, you know, I, there's a lot of, uh, we've talked about um, inconsistencies in his foreign policy, or uh, it's unclear what his overarching foreign policy ideal is, but he does seem uh, fairly resistant to war, right? He's not, he's been, uh, and, 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 and Bolton is the opposite of that, right? Like I, somebody described Bolton as, you know, he's a man who's who's never met a war he didn't love, right? And, and so um, that that seemed there's there was just it was destined to to clash. Um, Bolton is we've talked about on here. He's smart. He's been around for a long time. He's principled. Um, I don't agree with his principles, but he sticks to the principles. Um, 
And, uh, you know, Trump is very much about, you know, he wants to be flexible and, and to go back and forth. And, and so, it, I, you know, this was going to end eventually. Um, it's, it's a little shocking or strange that essentially the thing that got Bolton fired was that he suggested that having the Taliban over on the week of September 11th might be a bad idea. That is the thing that they're like, you're fired. How dare you suggest that? And and that might have been the only good idea Bolton had his entire tenure as national security advisor, because otherwise you're right. It was very hawkish. I mean, the North Koreans are ecstatic that he's gone. The Iranians are also happy that he's left. Uh, And it seems very reasonable to say that, hey, we should think about the timing of that Taliban (laughs) visit right near right around 9-11. The price of oil dropped immediately when Bolton, the the tweet went out (laughs) that Bolton was fired and the price of oil immediately dropped. And it's because, you know, the the risk of instability in the Middle East went down the instant he was he was he was out of the 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 national security advisor position. That is really something, right? That one person's involvement in a, in an administration can impact the price of oil. Mm -hmm. I I mean, to Phil's point, this, this was a doomed relationship. It's two people who are unwilling to compromise on anything, butting heads. And realistically, the president's going to win out in that situation. There was no indication that Bolton was one of those people who was in the administration that was willing to kind of not necessarily curtail um, the president's behavior, but, had a very one track mind. He knew what he wanted to do and he was going to do it regardless of what the president yeah. or anyone else said. Um, and that doesn't sit well with a president who wants to do everything himself. Um, realistically, I, I think this is, this is a positive development. Like you said, I'm sure the North Koreans are very excited to be able to potentially continue this weird, mm-hmm. um, you know, dance of, of negotiations that ha- have been underway for the better part of, of two years at this point. Uh, and the Iranians as well. This has to be a, a boon for them. Um, yeah, I, I think in the short term, this is probably a good thing. We'll see what the response is, uh, again, from North Korea or Iran or any of the other, um, you know, foreign powers that were he he Bolton cast a a, a a long shadow um and I think there's some benefit to that uh in the long term but also you know there's I think there's a, an immediate sigh of relief mm-hmm. with him being gone oh anytime you get Bolton out of a, an administration it is a good day right mm-hmm. I mean he's he is he's a smart guy but he's also an incredibly dangerous individual and there's reasons that other administrations have brought him in and then quickly removed him because of his behavior. Uh, the other thing that, that strikes me about this is that we've now seen three national security advisors, Michael Flynn, H.R. McMaster, and John Bolton. And it doesn't matter who's in that role, right? They're very different. They all have their own strategies. H.R. McMaster was the exact opposite of John Bolton, and they've had no effect on Trump. Uh, I don't know if they play any role in foreign policy. Um, yeah, no, it is uh, it is very, very telling. So there had been, I mean, we had talked about over the past few weeks that, that Bolton had been sort of pushed away, right? He had less and less access. I, I, a lot of the people around or the positions around Trump don't seem to be playing much of a role, right? It's they're sort of left to do their own thing. Um, and, and, you know, he, Trump doesn't, isn't relying on his cabinet in the way a traditional president would, yeah. right? He, he wants to do his his thing, his sort of public relations aspect of it and be left alone. Um, and for everybody else just to do, to do their thing. Um, yeah, I, 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 it's, it's an interesting thing in which I'm, I'm both, well, I don't, I, should we be concerned? 
so it, it Bolton's gone, right? That's we've talked about how that's probably a, a good thing. Um, but there's not likely to be some top notch replacement. Um, I, I feel like there's been this kind of period. I, I can sort of see a couple of phases with Trump's appointments. The the first phase was that he had some that were just kind of Trump cronies, but a lot of the people in the early stages of the Trump presidency were established figures, right? Who, who we talk about as the adults in the room who pushed back, you know, the Mattis types, um, and it seemed like they kind of thought they could restrain Trump or keep him in line. And it feels like, you know, a year or so in, they all just gave up, right? They were either fired or they decided they were done. They walked away. Um, and then it felt like the next phase was full of people who saw an opportunity, right? It's like, so Bolton is somebody who I see coming in, who sees this chance. He thinks I can influence the president. So I, I have this thing that I want to achieve. And the goal is less to restrain the president. And it's more about like, I have an opportunity to make an impact, you know, by, by, by molding or manipulating the president. And it feels like that phase is ending because I think people are realizing that can't be done either, right? That Trump's not, he's not, you know, consistent enough that you can actually get him to buy into a John Bolton-esque view of the world. My fear is that what that leaves are people who just want to be yes men, right? They just want to be close to power. They're not going to push back against the president. They don't have a, any sort of clear agenda. And it's just sort of further amateurization of the, of the um, positions around, around Trump. So I, I don't, I mean, it's, it's one of those where I am not a fan of Bolton. And I'm glad he's gone because if he was pressuring the president, it was going to be in this war type angle. But I'm also, you know, he also had this history of, you know, playing a role in international politics in U.S. foreign policy that he brought to the job that I'm less confident that future people are going to have. Now, if Trump just ignores the next one like he has the others, it won't matter. Matter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mike Pompeo suddenly is the final remaining voice, right? And he's the only one who really has some credibility. I don't really know who else is left in the administration that are that have any, you know, a big name. You're right, Phil. He's there. We're likely to get somebody who's just looking for a leg up. And that's going to be the next. It's not going to be somebody who's going to push back. No, I think it's great. We get the old guard out. We get some interns <laughs> right. in there. It's a good job placement program. <laughs> We got to start yeah. getting some new blood in there. It's, it'll be good. <laughs> so what do you think about the way in which so we've talked a lot about former officials of the Trump administration who are unwilling to criticize him. Bolton strikes me. and I think, Phil, you were texting about this yesterday is one of the guys who might be willing to say something. And the way in which Trump has handled him has not been polite. Oof. I saw somebody on Twitter saying that that the way that Trump fired Bolton is kind of like how you fire the pool boy. Right. You know, it's just <laughs> it's, it's rude and it's going to piss off Bolton. Do you think is it likely that we're finally going to get some inside view of, of Trump as a president? I think it's possible. So, I mean, if you think of it, if I don't know, I can tie this back into those kind of phases that I was talking about. The yeah. first people who are these sort of consummate professionals who want to keep the position professional. So Mattis, when he leaves as part of he sees part of that duty that, you know, professionalism that he's not going to, you know, tell tales outside of, of the office. Uh, Bolton, I think, you know, because of he has, you know, these principles, he thinks there is a right way to do things. And if you disagree <laughs> with him, you're an idiot. Um, he's not going to fight nice. He's not going to sit by while Trump badmouths him. I, yeah, I, I could very of all the people that have left, I could see him causing the biggest stink. And it's it might be for 
crappy reasons, right? It might not, it's, my, it's not out of nobility that he's doing this. It might be because, uh, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what the motivation would be, but, uh, yeah, I could see him actually, and, and you're exactly right. To that extent, Trump is not handling it well. I mean, immediately, as soon as the tweet went out, said that Trump said that he had fired, uh, Bolton within an hour or so, Bolton had tweeted about right. how that was a different, a different story. Um, yeah. I, he, I mean, before he was, before he was the national security advisor, I mean, he got there by being a Fox news guy, right. Who was on Fox mm-hmm. news talking about stuff. So the idea that he's going to go hide away in his you know home somewhere and retire and not speak out just doesn't fit with his personality. Yeah, he he goes uh, on Twitter. I offered to resign last night and President Trump said, quote, let's talk about it tomorrow, <laughs> immediately after he was fired. And, and they did over any- Twitter. They <laughs> right. talked about it over Twitter. The next <laughs> if there's anybody in that administration who has any brains left, they're going to be reaching out and trying to massage this over with John Bolton because you don't want him running loose. I mean, he's, he's it's it's dangerous. Well, I, I wonder how much support he has left in that town at this point. I, I, I Bolton or Trump? Bolton. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Trump has the entire Republican Party, <laughs> if you listen to this podcast enough. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's I. I you know, as much as we make fun, you know, Phil, you you made the point. Um, Trump seems to be wary of getting into an extended foreign conflict. Um, and Bolton is clearly the opposite of that. And he just seems like an exceptionally unlikable guy in, in multiple administrations at this point. And you wonder if he does come out and say something um, at this juncture, what that will necessarily do. I'm not sure it would do much damage to the president any more than has already been done. He's Teflon. These things don't stick. To yeah. Him. And yeah. Uh, again, nobody likes Bolton. No, he's just a, he's just a dick. His, his only outlet will be Fox News because yeah. I can't imagine MSNBC doesn't want even if John Bolton is ripping into the president, they're probably not going to bring him on. So there's limited no, outlets for to do him. with that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm I'm a, I, I tend to agree with you in that I don't know how much people care in general about what Bolton says, but I think some people do not necessarily a a viewer audience, but I think he's still amongst that sort of George Bush neocon group. There's a lot of people who still, you know, are, are very much in line with him and, and, you know, if that's another part of the Republican Party that he chips away at, it, you know, again, we've talked about before that if if Trump loses support broadly within the Republican Party, it's not going to happen with a single thing. Right. It's going to happen, you know, a little bit here, here and there. And so I think that's the sort of thing that might matter. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. And, and I do think that also. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the sorts of stories he would say, right? What he would talk about. If he talks about how, you know, we should be at war with North Korea and he won't do it, that's not going to move the needle at all. But Mm -hmm. if he has, you know, uh, salacious stories about the, you know, the incompetence of of what's going on behind the scenes, that that might make a dent in things. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Should we spend a few minutes talking about the whole Taliban coming to, to Camp yeah. David? Before, this, before, the, yeah, go ahead. Go, before we do that, I before, so I, I the, the other part that I that just to kind of tie it to Trump that I'm kind of curious what what you think. I, the disappointing thing about all of well, the disappointing thing about a lot of this for me is that it felt like um, because of Trump's like reluctance to go to war, because of some mm-hmm. of the unique characteristics about Trump, it felt like we might actually get this deal done. Um, and I don't know. And because of the sort of personality and because of his hold on the Republican party, 
I'm less confident that let's say a Democrat gets elected next, that the American people are going to be comfortable or that the Republican Party will be comfortable with a president, with a Democratic president making a deal with the Taliban. There's part of me that feels like this was a chance, right, to get this done. And so I'm wondering, do you think that there's a chance that this gets done uh, now that this has kind of blown up in this moment? By this, I mean, you know, uh, some sort of end to the to the to the war in Afghanistan. I mean, this isn't this result. I, I assume this was going to happen. This is the art of the deal again. Mm-hmm. He, he, you know, he puts a fantastic offer out there or or there's a, a chance for a, a real negotiation where there wasn't one previously. And then it, it gets pulled back instantly. And then you think that there's going to be some sort of, uh, you know, uh, um, um, uh, what's the word? Um, not reconciliation. Um, compromise. Mm-hmm. Uh at some point down the road where, you know, everybody gets something, but it's still a better deal than what we went in there talking about. Um, I, with Bolton gone. Yeah. There might be a slightly better chance, but I think this one is, it's so complicated and it's so, it's so nuanced. And the Taliban are probably, you know, th- again, we we've talked about it. This is, this is Vietnam. You can say, they're going to say whatever that they can to create some sort of negotiated peace where the U S gets to leave. Trump's happy, the military is happy, the American people are happy about it, and they retake the country and we're back where we were in 2000. Uh, I, yeah. I, I don't I don't really see a good outcome. It's it's it, in many ways it, it's Nixonian in the sense that Nixon could do deals that other Republicans or certainly Democrats couldn't do. So Trump could engage in a negotiated settlement with the Taliban. He could bring him to Camp David and, and I don't know if get away with it is right, but could certainly do that. I don't know if a Democratic president could do that. I don't know if a Republican president could do that. But everybody accepts now that the only way the U.S. gets out of Afghanistan is through negotiating with the Taliban. So, you know, Trump's Trump's whims are such that six months from now, this could be totally back on the table. Uh, and I, and I, I think it probably will be. I mean, you know, this, this just recycles. And, and in a few months, he'll have forgotten why he was mad at the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And the individuals on the ground are going to continue to pr- pursue an agreement. So we can use this to sort of transition into the how crazy it is to invite the Taliban to Camp mm-hmm. David on September 11th, yes. basically. Uh, but I mean, there's some reporting and a fair amount of evidence that the reason this blew up and the reason why the Taliban was invited to Camp David was that Trump wanted credit for making the deal. So there is a negotiator that has been in place that has the deal nailed down. And and Bolton and others, you know, Bolton was opposed, I think, to the whole idea of the Taliban coming. But, but a lot of people essentially before there's any meeting before the between the president and the and Taliban leaders, um, the the idea was the deal is inked, right? We have the agreement. Trump wanted to basically not have the deal inked because he wanted to be the one to ink the deal. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people close to him are saying because he wants the the Nobel Peace Prize, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so so as as sort of insane as it is, the idea of inviting uh, your enemy, right? I mean, that we are this, the, the Taliban is our enemy, inviting them to Camp David, negotiate with them. Right. Sign a deal with them, but don't like welcome them into your house as like guests that are, you know, that are that are invited. Having said all of that, uh, because I would like to see this brought to an end, the idea of Trump getting the Nobel Prize and taking credit for something that he had no role in whatsoever, it it pisses me off. But I'm also willing to say, just let him have it if it brings (laughs) an end to an 18 year war. (laughs) 
you know they'll do away with the Nobel Peace Prize at that <laughs> right, point, right? That. Yes. Give them all back. We're melting them down. This yeah. is no good anymore. <laughs> no, no. The, the idea that you need to – this is the, the only way out of Afghanistan for the United States. And I'm not sure if this is even better for Afghanistan is a negotiated settlement. Everybody agrees to that. But you, you're right. You don't bring them to Camp David. You don't do a big signing ceremony where everybody's shaking hands. You just say this has been done because of the history, because of 9-11 um, and the role of the Taliban in protecting al Qaeda. You just there's got to be somebody in the administration who's smart enough to convince Trump to say you can't do this. It's it's just but too toxic. That was Bolton, right? Yeah. And he got fired yeah. for it. That's, the, that's where we oh. come back to the the. He's the voice of reason, right? If they, yeah, oh, yeah. No, I'm not against the agreement, but it's so it's politically stupid. Yeah, to do this at Camp David. Liz he, Cheney thought it was a dumb idea. That's right because it's a dumb idea. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Um. <laughs> Now, I, and again, I, I, it's important. No, I don't think that a negotiated solution with the Taliban is necessarily a great thing for the future of, of Afghanistan. It's just a no great future. No, it That's just gets the United States out. Yeah. To your point, Nick, it's Vietnam all over again, but it ends the U.S. experience there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, all of it is really, it's just, it's messy. And I don't know where U.S. foreign policy with Afghanistan goes if Trump is not willing to rekindle these negotiations. There's I, nothing left. But I mean, there, again, there really there is nothing left. There's never been anything real. For the past ten years, yeah. we've been talking about negotiating with the Taliban on all of this stuff, and we're just we work under the assumption that they will eventually retake the country, and it probably won't take that long once the U.S. leaves. So I'm not even sure what what negotiations are going to do at this point. What are you negotiating? Because they're not going to live up to anything. Be nice, Taliban. Be nice. <laughs> right. it, it's not like the Taliban is keeping that, that we can't leave without their permission. Right. I mean, ultimately, right. we could just go. You could. We could yeah. just go. Right. And realistically, the negotiation should be. So here's the thing. We can make this look nice and you know, play by some of these rules or we're just going to leave and we're going to do what we do in Northern Africa and, you know, Southeast Asia. And we're just going to continue having these, you know, special operations forces running rampant through the country Mm -hmm. and, you know, decimating your infrastructure whenever we, you know, feel like it's necessary. So take your pick. Right. And it feels as if the, the Taliban is slightly more pragmatic about the political ramifications of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan, but their core views about the role of women, all of that, that's essential. That hasn't changed, right? I mean, that it's been 18 years and they, they not, they, they are not evolved. They are not rethinking any of those, those core issues. And that's, that's what's deeply disturbing about all of it. It, it, it is deeply disturbing. And I, I don't want to like downplay that. It's terrible. Like the idea that we're leaving the Taliban in this position, leaving Afghanistan in this situation and abandoning Afghan women and all these other things um, is, is awful, but it, it, to, it, it also misses the I, the fact that that is kind of U.S. foreign policy and you know in the macro, right? Like we're really good friends with Saudi Arabia, who is not they're not exactly you know a a, a, a modern feminist nation, right? Um, we have we've had lot, long history of alliances with countries that have terrible human rights records. Now mm-hmm. that doesn't mean it's okay, right? But but if you get stuck on that on that particular issue, it means that we really need to reevaluate the entirety of U.S. foreign policy. And that that has, you know, maybe we should do that, but it has much bigger ramifications than than, you know, just what's happening in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. This is all very dark and depressing. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, it's, it's true, right? This is a deeper question. 
I mean, it's not it's not even a deeper thing uh, to be completely pragmatic and realistic and, and, you know, pessimistic about it. Saudi Arabia has something to offer. Afghanistan has nothing to offer at this point. It's not strategically viable anymore just because it's such a there, there was a bombing at, at the U.S. embassy uh, today, I think, early, early this morning. It's still it's a nightmare. There's there is nothing of strategic value anymore there. It's a, a money pit that has no natural resources. It has a population that hates us that will never be tamed. It's never been tamed. No, but it will be a, a stain on U.S. foreign policy and their ability to rebuild nations and all of that. Right. I mean, that that and that that is significant in terms of. No, this will be the lesson where we learned once and for all that we shouldn't rebuild nations. Yeah, maybe we should have been out of there in 2003 after we decimated everything. Nick, we relearned that over and over and over <laughs> about every 15 years. So, all right, let's talk beer. Phil, it looks like you've got a dark beer there. It looks looks tasty. I do. So this is uh, this is from um, it's another treehouse. Uh, beer. So Treehouse is the, the the brewery in Western Mass that does the that doesn't do just distribution. You've got to go there to get them. Um, and I I was not familiar with this one. It's called Bear, uh, and it's their um, their brown ale, their American brown ale. Everything I've had from there has been some sort of of an IPA or some variation on it. Um, and they do really good. IPAs. Uh, and I had not had their, their brown ale. When you pour this thing, like when I first poured it, I've had brown ales before and this was like, it's dark. Like it it's comes out. Oil, yeah. Yeah. And it, um, it's almost reddish. Uh, and the first, the, my first couple of sips were, it was, it felt like a stout. Like, I mean, it's really, really kind of in your face and caramelly. And then as you drink it, it just mellows out. Um, Ooh. it's, it's, I, yeah, I mean, I really like it. It's got a nice kind of you know, it, it's a powerful flavor. It doesn't feel I've had brown ales before that taste watery, right? This is not that. Um, it's a really nice, nice flavor. Um, it's a nice change from all the kind of, you know, the the pale ales that I've been having. I It was, it was a, a good beer. I'd have another. I want to visit this treehouse. I mean, because we right. had a couple. They were fantastic. <laughs> you talk about how amazing mm-hmm. they are. Um, yeah, I want to I try some more of theirs. Yeah. All right, Nick, what do we have? We are having a uh, a Bell's official uh, hazy IPA. <coughs> oh, the hazy IPAs are huge <laughs> these days. We were talking before we started recording. Um, I, like, I have a weird relationship with with Bell's. Um, and like, Oberon was one of the first beers that I ever really had that was outside of you know a, a Bush Light or a Milwaukee's Best because <laughs> it was college. Um, this one was was surprisingly. Um, was good and yeah. I, I i like oberon is one of my original favorite beers and some of their other ones just don't do it for me this one was was pretty good yeah um like i said i think you have to have it really cold uh and that definitely helps it it has a little uh sweetness to it like just enough to kind of um balance out the the hoppiness to it but it was still pretty light um yeah, it's not it's not a chewable thing. No, it's, it's very it's refreshing. It, you know, the, so the hazy IPAs obviously are cloudy, but sometimes they're like you said, they're so thick. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was more crisp, almost. You know, it's not a lager, but it was more in that direction. I like this one. This is a this is a good beer. Yeah, so well done. <clears throat> um, if you guys want to check out the beers that we have on the podcast, uh, find us on Untapped uh, on iOS or Android. Uh, look for Barstool Politics, and you will find all of our reviews on there. Let's jump to speed round because we yeah. got to talk about some sharpies and hurricanes um, and Sharpie Gate, and it's helpful to start with the review of events because a lot has happened. So as, as the hurricane was approaching the United States, President Trump tweeted. 
quote, in addition to Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Alabama will most likely be hit much harder than anticipated. That tweet prompted a collective uh, corrective tweet from the National Weather Service of Alabama, which reassured residents of Alabama that they were safe. Yet for the next week, uh, Trump has insisted he was, in fact, correct and blamed the fake news, which he said was, quote, crazy hoping against hope that I made a mistake, which I didn't. Oh, (laughs) And on September 4th, the president gave a hurricane update from the White House and displayed a map that showed the hurricane project uh, hurricanes projected path, taking it directly over Florida. The map included an additional cone written in black Sharpie that extended the hurricane's path to hit the edge of Alabama. Obviously, a a Trump presidential Sharpie. Things get even more interesting on Friday when the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, released a statement saying that Alabama was, in fact, threatened by the storm at the time of Trump's infamous tweet. On Monday, we learned from The New York Times uh, that Mick Mulvaney, the acting White House chief of staff, told Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, to intervene and that heads would roll unless this was cleaned up. Hours after the release of that statement, the acting chief scientist at NOAA said the agency probably violated its scientific integrity rules by doing so. Wow. Phil, this needs analysis and we need it now. Go. <laughs> this, this whole story is insane. <laughs> uh, on so many levels. I mean, uh, on one level, it's insane just in that if Trump would had just left it alone, right? Like he's been, this has been ten day, a 10 day story that if he had tweeted the tweet and, and the National Weather Service had said Alabama's not at threat and Trump had never responded, nobody would have picked up on it. I mean, they would have, right. people would have, you know, a couple of people would have laughed about it and we would just have moved on. Um, the 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 fact that he has like that he can't let go of this is you know indicative, or it's it's just sort of fits with with his personality. Um, you know the fact that he did this, that he like doctored a weather map, and uh, that's a story. Uh, but it's mostly like this is you know look how look how ridiculous the the president is. The big story in my mind is the is the Wilbur Ross thing that, that Wilbur Ross threatened to essentially fire uh, people at NOAA if they didn't issue this tweet. And then now today the news comes out that Mick Mulvaney, the acting chief. Uh, 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 Chief, yeah, of staff Chief of staff is yeah. the one who told Ross to do this. And then you, you were saying that, the, that it's even that Trump was the one who told Mulvaney this. <laughs> right. That's the, that's a, that's a huge story. I mean, so the, I mean, it's, it's, it's a story in that the president is, is basically threatening government employees or the, the, the president's staff is threatening government employees if they don't provide information that is pleasing to the president. But mm-hmm. to sort of step back from it, the really concerning thing is that the Commerce Department does a lot of stuff, right? The idea, if it's, it might seem silly to to people, the idea that, oh, the weather, right? We're going to, we have to. That was but my I mean, question. It could be, it could, involved it, could, in this? Right. it could be a problematic, right? If, if the president, if, if the weather service is giving politically motivated instead of, uh, you know, accurate scientific information. But when you quickly realize that it's also, you know, NOAA is in charge of climate information, right? Um, When you realize that the Commerce Department is in charge of accumulating all sorts of economic statistics. So when you're starting to talk about, you know, if if, uh, someone provides 
information that is displeasing to the president, they will be the the threat comes down that they will be fired. Then you start to bring this questioning of all sorts of governmental facts and 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 data that is really problematic. And I mean, Wilbur Ross is a problematic guy. He should. This is in my mind, he should be gone. Right. This is enough to to make him resign or to like bring impeachment charges against him. It's that in my mind, it's that big of a deal. Nick, you you love accurate weather. <laughs> the last time I checked with the Commerce Secretary, the climate was a okay. He rated it fifty stars. Yeah, if you know what I'm saying. Um, yeah, this is just bizarre. Yeah. Like, uh, realistically, uh, again, uh, as Phil was saying, if the hurricane had gone that way, and realistically, that would have been the path that it would have gone. That's one thing, but like, it just the the need to constantly put yourself in front of the story or into a story where you don't need to be all of these things would just go away if you just shut the fuck up let it go just shut up yeah admit um, you're wrong or or have somebody else say oops the president made a mistake right Boom, it's over yeah and uh, admit no, you're I, wrong <laughs> <laughs> that's never gonna happen yeah when, when i i try and you know, defend, quote unquote, sure. the administration on, on some things and some of the, the actions that they take. When you're talking about, you know, scientific data and weather models and trying to influence information that it's clearly it, with Sharpies and yeah, you're it's one thing if you're talking about, um, you know, things that are subjective in terms of, of political discourse and things like that. But this is this is concrete scientific evidence and scientists who are telling you, no, this is not the case. And you're threatening them. Like I, th that's, that's a boundary that I'm not okay with. anymore. And scientists are easily intimidated. Like Phil, we hang yes, around scientists. We are nerds. scientists, right? Yeah. Yes. When you threaten to fire them, they will shut up. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, that's the big, what happened? How many knuckle sandwiches have you threatened to give those scientists? <laughs> before? Right. Yeah. Except for the sociologists, mm. they can get rough. Um, <laughs> What happened to cabinet officials who would threaten to resign when they were asked to do things that were inappropriate, right? I mean, that, that used to be a thing when the president would say, I want to do this, and, and somebody would realize it was inappropriate. They would say, no, Mr. President, I'm going to resign if you're going to ask me to do this. Now we have a chain of individuals, and you're both spot on, you know, that Mulvaney and Ross are willing to do this and not just like subtly do this, but to say, you're, you know, people will be fired if you don't kowtow to the president. It is absolutely terrible. Um, and it speaks to the way in which the government is now bending to the will of the president in a way early in his administration that wasn't happening. Well, it goes back to, you know, the thing we talk about with Tom oftentimes about how Congress has, has, you know, failed to do its duty in terms of legislating. It's also failed to do its duty in terms of oversight, right? Wilbur Ross should be, should have been gone a long time ago. This is the guy who, uh, you know, was involved in all of the citizenship question stuff, which is that in and of itself uh, is not necessarily a, 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 you know, there's, there's, policy reasons to be upset about that. But he lied about, you know, he lied about the process that brought the citizenship question or the, you know, the, it's, it's well established. He hasn't divested himself. Uh, he has all sorts of conflicts of interest, you know, financially. He's the guy who the stories have come out about how he always falls asleep in meetings. Like this guy shouldn't be, <laughs> he shouldn't be a cabinet secretary, but right. there's a way in, in the American government to deal with that. And that's where Congress has to actually do stuff. And, and that's where, um, you know, I, I, again, I, it's 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 on Trump to appoint good people, but it's on Congress to make sure that Trump appoints good people. And it just feels like neither of those things are really happening right. at this mm -hmm. point. 
And we've talked about the way in which climate has been politicized. So climate change, that debate has been politicized, but the day-to-day weather hasn't been. Right. And now we've drifted in a, in a place where the president is politicizing the weather. And mm-hmm. that that has real implications. And luckily, this didn't cause any harm because he was just saying it was going to hit when it wasn't. But there could be a future event where the president weighs in where it really does, it does matter. Right. The beauty of all of this is that by doing this crazy stuff, we've moved on past the idea that he was trying to nuke hurricanes to prevent this from <laughs> happening. <laughs> That's right. Okay, to circle back to our earlier story, apparently the per- one of the speculations about who leaked that story, John Bolton. <laughs> that John Bolton was mad at Trump for something and he was the one. And we don't know if that's true or not. Who leaked the story that the president wanted to nuke hurricanes. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Nick, I cut you off. No, you're, I was so no, excited yeah, about that. All right, let's just move to the next topic. Yeah. Phil's campaign corner. <laughs> I love that jingle. Uh, We're trying to think of a theme song for this. So that's right. we haven't figured it out yet. If you guys have suggestions, please send them yes. to us. <laughs> so it's time for one of our listeners' favorite segments, Phil's campaign corner. For new listeners, this is when our very own Dr. Phil Barker, who just happens to live in New Hampshire and is a superstar political scientist at Keene State College, gets to interact with the presidential candidates when they come to campus for campaign events. This week, brought Beto O'Rourke to campus, who was introduced at the event by none other than our very own Phil Barker. So, Phil, tell us about Beto's visit and what you learned from your inside look at his campaign. Uh, So, uh, you know, I'll start by just talking about some more kind of superficial stuff. The the fascinating thing, this is, I don't know, the eighth presidential candidate I've had a chance to, to be a part of their visit to campus. And so you start to see these, these, (laughs) 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 Um, you start to see these, (laughs) 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 you start to see, uh, you know, the first ones you go to, you're, you're, you, I don't know, you're, you're into it for the, the, you're, you want to hear what the politician has to say and whatever. And you do enough of them and you start to notice little stuff. Beto was interesting in that, um, his, I mean, it was behind the scenes, right. In the talk about, about behind the scenes, it was disorganized. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. It was, um, uh, you know, it was clear that, I mean, really young staff, like it wasn't, it just didn't, some of the, we, I talked last, you know, spring about when the Harris campaign came to campus, they were not disorganized and they were in my mind kind of, you know, asses, right? Um, this was the sort of the opposite of that. They were all super friendly, but it wasn't, it was clear that nobody really knew exactly what was going on. Um, the example of that is when they introduced him, he wasn't there. So they introduced, you know, Beto O'Rourke oh, no. and they start the music and everybody looks to the door and he doesn't come out <laughs> and the music keeps playing and they go all the way through the intro song and then they restart it and they try to, the, the <laughs> staffers tried to get a chant going and the people oh. were really joining in and I'm like, can't chant. And then he showed up, you know, he was, I don't know, four minutes after the introduction. <laughs> or <whatever. showed> up. <laughs> right, right. Um, having said all that, so then, you know, he, he shows up and, uh, the, you know, the, the approach, uh, style is what I kept thinking. I mean, this is what he's, asso- what people associate with Beto, right? Like it's, it's a lot about the style. Um, rather than having like rows of people, they have a circle, they had, they didn't have chairs. They had people just gather around in a circle that he, you know, stood in the middle of, I got to stand on his little box that he stands on. That made me feel really important. Not really, but, um, <laughs> <your> soapbox. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but so there's, you know, that you, there's a, there's a feeling that they're trying to get across and, and I, you know, having, having, you know, being from Texas and, and seeing people in Texas uh, respond to him, I, I get why particularly young people really kind of get excited about that style. 
New Hampshire's a little different. Like New Hampshire's kind of old, right? He's on a college campus, so they're college kids. But it, you know, the 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 thing that a lot of New Hampshire voters are looking for is they want you know this interaction, this like hard question back and forth, and and he's not really necessarily giving that. Having said all of that, he, I would say he's good at it. So when he gets there, he's really good at, at telling stories. Like he, you know, he, he has a way of, of, you know, getting into detail. So when he was talking about gun violence, he talked not just about the El Paso shooting and like how gun violence is bad. He like got into the details of like what gun violence does. Like he talked about the effect of, you know, assault weapons and how they, you know, the bullets do a different type of damage than a handgun. He told the story about, you know, civil, the civil rights movement and how it began with a handful of people and how it builds over time. And so he's, 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 I, I felt like, you know, sort of like a motivational speaker, like he's good, to, he's fun to listen to. He's interesting. He's compelling. There's less on the details, like the comparison to like an Elizabeth Warren who has very clear details that, that really, that really stands out. Mm-hmm. See, that this just upsets me because this feels like it's a wasted opportunity, right? That if, if he, if he is this kind of dynamic, thoughtful guy, maybe not all the details, Get a staff who can put an organization together so, you know, the the campaign runs well. This feels like a wasted opportunity to me that he could be a good candidate, but we'll never know. This is not we uh, we talked about it with Suzanne several times. This is not his time. They're too green for this. She was right. I was wrong. She's right. She was absolutely right. He he could very well be that guy. But this is he's he's he just doesn't have the chops for it now. And realistically, I I read a a really interesting piece in Vanity Fair. Um, and then I had to take a scalding hot shower and scrub myself down because <laughs> I felt so dirty for doing it. Um, just about the the kind of disconnect between some presidential candidates and the majority of Democratic voters and this this kind of balance between, you know, the the uh, younger kind of upstarts that are trying to change things and the majority of people who, uh, again, to to Phil's point, people who are from New Hampshire or most of, the, you know, the Democratic electorate are older and just want kind of a normal, even keel thing there. Yeah. He doesn't seem to have, and it, as, as time goes on, it seems like that continues to fray and he gets farther and farther away from yeah. being able to bring in that kind of middle of the road Democrat who he would absolutely need to make any sort of, you know, lasting effect. Well, it's, it's a really great question about what comes in the future for him, but it's just, it's frustrating because he should be in his prime. And I wonder whether it's he needs more seasoning as a candidate or does he just need a better staff? Does he need people who put him in the right position, who organize these events, make everything smooth? I, I don't know. Because, what was your sense of that? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I um, He does. Like I said, that when I when I talk about getting the details right, like he's he's good at telling the stories, but he plays the game well. Like he came in with a keen state hat on, like he knew facts mm-hmm. about New Hampshire, about, you know, uh, drug issue, like not just about, you know, the, the opioid crisis in New Hampshire, but had, you know, numbers and, and details. He's, he's clearly smart. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's just that he, uh, he, he, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see where he goes from here because what happened was he had this huge, you know, uh, there were so many people who expected so much of him and he had, when he, when he first declared, there was, uh, you know, he got a lot of donations. People were really excited and it felt like he didn't seize that opportunity and it, and it's kind of fizzled, but I, I sort of, and this will lead us into the next, into the next yeah. topic. Um, I, I think he still has a chance to turn it around. So one of the things that, that, that stood out to me in terms of substance with, with Beto 
was this contrast that I, I kept thinking about how different things are today than they were three, four years ago, which is that it, it feels like, or it used to feel like Democrats were almost apologetic about their policy stances. Uh, we're opposed to guns. You know, we, we, we want to limit guns, but you know, we're not going to go too far and we want to make sure to respect this and that. Um, Beto, there was none of that. Like he was, he was like, they, when I compare him to the way Obama talked about politics now, you know, Obama it, it was in a different position. But, um, you know, Beto, like there's, there was no sugarcoating it. He, he talked about, we're going to take guns away, right? We're going to take assault weapons, assault rifles away from people. There will be a mandatory gun buyback. He, he talked openly about Trump is a, not just a racist, but a white nationalist. Like there was no mincing of words. And I, I sort of think that that shows where we are as a country, right? That I think that that will get, you know, people who are really upset about the, about Trump, the democratic party, you know, base, the core, they're going to respond to that. And in fact, um, I saw today that in this has kind of been a shift with Beto recently. Um, I saw today that a new CNN poll came out and he's gone from 2%. He had kind of fallen to 2% in the polls. He's up to like 5%. So the people are starting to respond to it. Mm, that's interesting. There's a feather in your cap. Yeah. yeah. And you're right. A perfect transition. So we're going to stick with Beto for one additional speed round topic. More Phil's campaign corner. Uh, <laughs> and focus on his full-throated embrace of the F-bomb during the campaign. Beto received widespread media attention for dropping the F-bomb in response to the mass shooting in El Paso. But that was but one of many times the candidates cursed on the campaign trail. Some have suggested that this is an authentic way for O'Rourke to confront the madness of a political system unable to address the tragedy of gun violence. Yet others, yet to others, it feels as if it's a calculated way to draw attention to a failing campaign. I'm a big believer that language matters. And to demonstrate this, Nick and I will read a couple of famous quotes. I'll read the historical quote as it was said. And then Nick will read the same quote with the addition of a well-placed F-bomb. This is good fun. This would be fun. Nick. Dancing monkey. All right. This is from... <laughs> FDR. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Nick? Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live as totally fucked up and shit, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by the naval and air forces of Japan. <laughs> is, why, this. This why did you take out Empire of Japan there? Was that part of the quote? No, I don't, I should have, I'm sorry. I should have. Damn it, yeah. <laughs> okay. Accuracy matters. <laughs> All right. The next one. Ronald Reagan on a famous trip to Berlin. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. <clears throat> Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this fucking wall, you dick. <laughs> I asked. I added that last part. <laughs> this is educational. See, I got. To, yeah. I got to do it. We probably should have put a warning in there, but I don't care. No, this is good. Phil, yeah. Phil, we spent a lot of time talking about norms and how the current president undermines norms. Norms with abandon. Yet, in his own way, Beto is challenging and undermining longstanding rhetorical norms. Challenging the existing existing normative order can be a good or bad thing. So, so what do you make of Beto's foul mouth? Yeah. What the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know fully what to make of this. There's a there's a little part of me, the old part of me that that thinks this is bad, right? That that having uh, you know having uh, uh, some level of you know propriety and professionalism and whatever is good, right? Being able to 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 avoid that. again the president's audience is a broad audience, right? He's speaking for lots of people. 
there's another part of me that thinks that in in this day and age and and stuff that's going on, there's that there's part of me that's sympathetic to Beto, who's basically you know we're going to get upset about him using a cuss word in in an era in which you know all sorts of crazy shit is happening, right? <laughs> um, in the political world, so are we going to get worked up about a president or a presidential candidate using a cuss word? Uh, when, you know, there's, there's you know, stuff going on with immigration and putting kids in cages and, and, you know, climate changes, there's all sorts of stuff that's going on. You know, the, the, pre- we just finished talking about how the president threatened to fire people if they didn't change the weather <laughs> to fit his needs. So I, I have a hard time feeling like really getting worked up about somebody, you know, cussing on a presidential and, and to me, like seeing him, uh, seeing Beto, uh, last week, I, 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 you know, who knows? I, I'm sure there's some level of, of, uh, there, there's to some extent they're, they're doing this on purpose, but for the most part, it felt legitimate. Like it felt like he, you know, got to this frustrated point. Um, and he's just like, you know, and maybe it's because he's not doing well that he's, he can kind of sort of let it go and be like, I, you know, I don't have that much to lose. So I'm going to, you know, be passionate about stuff. Hmm. Nick, listeners, listeners love your potty mouth. So, <laughs> <laughs> is Which, that what they is say? This, is oh. this a big deal? Not a big deal? No deal? I, I mean, in the context of this, I, I'm of the mindset that he he knows he's going down, mm-hmm. and this is a good way to get a little bit of attention prior to that. This is Germany when they knew they were going to lose the war, in, in my <laughs> opinion. Um, I, I, I think there, you know, there there's merit in the sense that we've had to deal with a lot of really hard things and, you know, some, some issues that we, we have no experience dealing with, uh, you know, in terms of what this administration has done and, uh, in terms of, uh, democratic presidential nominees. Uh, I, I think there is a, a genuine frustration there with how things are, have been handled and what they would like to see done and what isn't getting accomplished. I think that there's, there's a difference between being frustrated about those things, genuinely frustrated and getting a point across effectively enough to where it's not only going to be um, rousing and, and effective for the electorate, but it's also going to what's, what's the best way to put it. It's going to endear you to a, a wider electorate, I guess this just seems the more that they do this, it seems, and, it, and we, we've talked about it. He's not the only one. Cory Booker did it as well, and and half a dozen others at this point. Um, it seems, it seems more like anger, like mm-hmm. amateur, amateurish anger, for for lack of a better term. Um, and I don't think it's it it plays well. At some point, you need to put that away and and give us something that's. Um, uh, endearing and makes you feel safe and secure in the person that's doing mm-hmm. it. And it's just not another um, uh, mouthpiece for a, a particular uh, political perspective. You need someone who you think can be not necessarily presidential, but has that leadership quality of making people feel secure and like they can do something about this particular issue. And that's an important distinction between the use of the term, which I think our society is much more comfortable. You know, you see uh, this word is used all the time. It's, you know, you see t-shirts, WTF all the time. I mean, this is something we're, it's, it's, it's almost that, you know, like the word damn and hell, like we're much more comfortable with those. It's your mouth. 
Yeah, that's right. It's drifting in that direction. But Shut I think your there's damn a dis- mouth. <laughs> <laughs> there's a distinction between the average, you know, the public using that and the president using it. And, yeah. and maybe it's just because the current president doesn't have any limits that I'm search I'm craving for political leaders that do. I want to sure. live in a world with limits, which is sort of bizarre to me. I, I do think that at least some of the times that Beto has used the term, it, it feels authentic, right? And I, I get that. Um, I also want a discourse that that models civility, that where the president is is better than us, even if he's not, he appears to be modeling good behavior. And, and so I guess that's why I'm a little uncomfortable, but I don't know if I would be uncomfortable if Trump wasn't president. So um, I, I think it's totally going to work. I think in yeah. this day and age, I think people are the idea of being concerned about civility in in this day. You know, if if Trump is talking about how you know shithole countries are and and uh, is talking about you know white nationalists and how there's good people on both sides of the debate and stuff, there are a lot of people in the world or in the country who are fed up with the idea of civility, right? Like we're not going to sit around and be nice. And I think Beto's selling point is his passion, right? That was what got him. That's what people got excited about. Whether you like that or not, that's kind of his brand. And I think this is going to play towards that. It's a lot of people who were just pissed off about the state of, of, of events and don't want to abide by these old notions of what's proper or what's right uh, you know, in, 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 in a world in which Trump is president. I, I think, I don't know that it's enough to like fully revive his campaign or to make him, but I, just the fact that it's, his numbers have gone up, you know, in, in the last couple of weeks, um, you know, that puts him more in line with the uh, with the Pete Buttigieg's and the Kamala Harris's, I, I you know I don't know I I think people might respond to it. I we'll, we'll see. I, he he strikes me as a really good vice presidential candidate. He's young. Mm-hmm. He's from Texas. He's kind of you know fiery and passionate. Um, you know who knows? We'll we'll see. He may represent the next wave of of politicians, right? That that new generation where I think you're right. There's less hemming and hawing. We're not going to see as many George H. W. Bushes anymore that were so worried about being kind and polite and oh no, civil. that's dead. Yeah, but yeah, I think there's a distinction between this and that. Yeah, I mean, I, we haven't really figured out what that line. There's got to be yet. a middle ground, right? Yes. Yes. God you're so old, Bill. <laughs> this is true. All right. So we, we need more Phil's campaign corner. So over the last few weeks, we've seen th- three Republicans announce that they will challenge President Trump for the Republican nomination. They include former South Carolina governor and congressman Mark Sanford, former representative Joe Walsh of Illinois, and former Massachusetts governor Bill Weld. Nick, do you know who Bill Weld was hanging out with yesterday? No, I don't, Bill. Who? Phil Barker. What? Yes. <laughs> While it's unlikely that any of these three candidates will prevent Trump from winning the Republican nomination, they do in their own way pose a threat to the president. Phil, why don't you start us off by talking about Bill Weld's visit to campus yesterday, and then we'll dive into the Republican primary as a whole. Uh, yeah, so Bill Weld was on on campus. He's um, I don't know how familiar or how much people know about him. He was very little, yes, very right, very little. Right. <laughs> so he was a, 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 a I think a two term uh, governor of Massachusetts as a Republican, which is if you know anything about Massachusetts, that's pretty remarkable. And and he sort of kind of create set the path for future. There have been a number of go- uh, Republican governors since, uh, and was I. Popular, and then in the last election, he was the libertarian vice presidential candidate. So he was the vice presidential presidential candidate on the libertarian ticket. 
So Bill Weld is no, he's not, he's no Beto, right? Like he's not standing on boxes. He's not, you know, blasting music. He's not, you know, firing people up. Um, the, the turnout was smaller, but was you know, more people than I, I expected to be there. Um, it's really interesting to hear him talk. So I, I talk about Beto and how he's not holding back. Uh, Bill Weld's not really holding back either. I mean, he go, he, he, you know, in his, both in his comments that he made and then his questions, he makes it clear that he's a fiscal conservative, like he's concerned about the debt and about, you know, government expenditures. But he's also, I mean, he's really a libertarian, right? He's he's much more, you know, he's he's open about how he supports um, LGBTQ rights. He talks about how the environment, like when he talks about his critiques of the Trump administration, um, they were uh, the you know economic issues, um, but they were environmental protection. He talked about calling climate change a hoax as you know fundamentally dangerous. He talked about Trump's attacks on civil rights in general, both the you know the lesbian gay community, but also you know immigrants, African Americans, all of that stuff. He talked about how he's pro-choice and 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 you know women's rights and and all of that. On other things like gun rights, you know he's fundamentally protective of gun rights. So it was kind of interesting. He's this sort of old school Republican in some ways, like this sort of Eisenhower Republican before the. Sort Sort of religious right kind of became a key player in the Republican Except Party. Except for all the gay stuff. Well, uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and the nice. minority stuff, yeah. Right, um, right, right. <laughs> um, but you know, it's 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 uh, it's interesting to hear. I, I I texted you, Bill, afterwards, and the thing that stood out to me afterwards is that it seemed like he. We talked about um, Hickenlooper when he was here um, and, and how Hickenlooper had this kind of pragmatic, kind of moderate approach to politics. It felt like Bill Weld as a Republican and Hickenlooper as a Democrat had more in common with each other than either one of them have in common with their current parties. So, you know, Hickenlooper feels like a man who's not in line with the current Democratic Party. Bill Weld feels like a man who's not in line with the current Republican Party. Um, and and it's, you know, it, it speaks to the fact that there are a lot of Americans who don't feel represented by either of these um, of these parties. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is if you go back to the 90s, there was real conversation about what was the difference between Bill Clinton and Republicans. And there was all this conversation mm-hmm. about the parties have converged in the middle, that there's no longer a real distinction between the Democrats and Republicans. Well, we fixed that problem, right? Uh, you know, we've moved to much more extremes and candidates like Weld and Hickenlooper, they're, at least at this moment, there doesn't feel doesn't feel like there's real space for them. Mm-hmm. No. So yeah, I, I even think- though I think there should be. Yeah, I mean, so let's talk about the primary and the, the idea. So Bill Weld was the first to declare he's been in this race for a long time. Um, he stands no chance, right? Like he's not going to he's not going to win. He's not challenging a, a sitting president is an incredibly difficult thing to do um, in any circumstance. Now, uh, Trump, by you know, he has high approval ratings among the Republican Party, but they're not actually that high compared to previous Republican presidents. So you know, they're in the upper eighties. Previous Republican presidents have been in the you know mid to upper nineties. So there, there's no doubt that there are Republicans who don't feel represented by Trump. Uh, Bill Weld's not going to be the guy to get them fired up. But we now have Joe Walsh. We have Mark Sanford. I think we're going to see more. I I think we're going to see more Republicans who throw their hat in the ring. Um, I don't know if any of them will be big names. And I don't know that any of them will be successful. 
Um, but I think it's really important. I'm really glad to see it happening because it means that there is a conversation going on about what the Republican Party should look like. It's the same reason why I was glad that there were primary challengers to Hillary Clinton. Uh, even if you're fully on board with Hillary Clinton, there should be discussions about what does the party stand for and what's the direction it's going in. And you know, Trump and his supporters might win that debate easily, but the debate should happen. Uh, and and Bill Weld said that there will be a debate. Obviously, Trump's not going to participate. But now that there are three people and Walsh and Sanford are not, you know, household names, but they're political names that people, you know, in the political world know about. And they're going to have apparently some televised debate at some point where the three of them talk about stuff. And I think that's good for the country, even if it's futile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, I Realistically, uh, as we we started the discussion, we know next to nothing about um, any of these candidates, realistically. Uh, and I think it would be to the benefit of uh, in, in terms of, of media coverage to put these people out there, not necessarily as. Um, what's the word that, that they're that they would have the the ability to be Trump, but to know that there are differing voices within the Republican Party and spread that knowledge, uh, uh, you know, farther afield than we have right now. Um, it, there seems to be so little information about alternatives to what we have currently uh, with the administration that uh, like we talked about it with the Demo- uh, the the democratic nominees um some of the 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 lesser known ones who you know are are out of out of contention at this point had really really good ideas mm-hmm. that could feasibly fit under um you know one of the existing parties or could create a third party um given the the ideological polarization that we see between democrats and republicans um and be viable um i like something needs to change fundamentally because I, I feel like between the Democrats and Republicans, regardless of where you align yourself, they're fairly in terms of um, actions and abilities to operate and how they conduct themselves. They're very, very, very similar. Um, and we need an alternative to that because no one seems to be happy with it at this point. You just want your team to win. Especially just, just thinking about this on the Republican side, the degree to which the Republican Party has shifted dramatically in Trump's direction. We don't always appreciate how important that is. And so these individuals can make an alternative vision of what it means to be a Republican. And you're right. They don't have a chance to win. But for for some Republicans who are maybe not comfortable with the way that Trump conducts himself, it, it reminds them that there are alternatives. And that's that's an important well, development. Mm-hmm. It, it, in the normal process, it, even if you don't win, you have an impact. Right. So, uh, the, you know, Bernie pushed Hillary uh, in in a, this sort of leftward direction. I, I think about like even the current Democratic Party, Inslee, Jay Inslee has dropped dropped out from Washington, who was the sort of all in on the environment candidate. But there's no doubt that he shaped or that he has pushed candidates to to take up that issue. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know that Trump's the type of candidate that will respond to critiques. But, you know, let's say one of these candidates with a little bit of coverage starts getting a little support. It forces Trump to 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 deal with that. I don't know that he's the, again, I don't know that he's the type of candidate that will actually respond. But the 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 important of have importance of having multiple choices is is, I think, you know, it, it, it's not to be mm-hmm. underestimated. Yeah. Well, and the, the the fact that if he gets criticized from a Republican means that discussion has to be on Republican issues. So right. when a Democrat criticizes Trump, it's easy to discard that as, hey, that's partisanship. You know, that's no big deal. But if a Republican says, no, this is what a true Republican believes and Trump has to respond to that, that creates 
a useful space for real dialogue. <laughs> but this, this is where this is yeah. where the crazy partisanship comes in, right? Like Tucker Carlson on Fox News described John Bolton as a as a man of the left, right? That they, he was the sort of left wing, not truly conservative person. That's crazy. That's not right, Phil. That's not right at all. <laughs> right, <laughs> but but we live in a day and age with with you know social yeah. media and all that stuff where we can just sort of chalk someone up as as you know, we can just dismiss them. Oh, anyway. yeah. That's the definition terrible. of a real Republican or a real Democrat at this point is is, is completely fluid. Yeah. Uh, and realistically, the one who is in power is going to be the one that dictates what the the yeah. the true member of that particular political alignment is. It's going to be so interesting to see what happens to the Republican Party after Trump eventually leaves, you know, whether that's four years from now or I guess more than that. But, yeah, you I know, think it's 10 going to be years confined from now, to the Republicans. This, this trend isn't going to change if a Democrat takes power. No, it's no, going no, to be no, the right. exact same. But thing. the Republicans will then have to make a decision. Do they want to stick with the Republican Party that Trump formed yes. or do they want to go back to a more traditional thing? And I, I, I yeah. So, all right, we got to play a game. Gentlemen, we like to close the podcast with a fun and thought provoking game. And this week we're going to play a new game called Is That Okay? I feel like we need a wheel with we all do, the games. We do. We yeah. do. This is a game where I detail a potentially questionable action taken by a political figure. And you tell me whether that's okay. No. <laughs> this week, the incident centers on a little airport in Scotland. Back in 2014, after acquiring a golf resort in Scotland, Donald Trump entered a partnership with a struggling local airport there to increase air traffic and boost tourism in the region. The next year, when Trump began running for president, the Pentagon decided to ramp up its use of that very airport to refuel Air Force flights. Additionally, it gave the local airport the job of helping to find accommodation for flight crews who had remain, who had to remain overnight. As part of that arrangement, the Trump Organization worked to get Trump Turnberry added to the list of hotels that the airport routinely send air crews to, even though it was further away than many other hotels and more expensive. Trump has rejected any suggestion of impropriety. Yet I ask you, gentlemen, is that okay, Phil? <laughs> <laughs> it it almost sounds like you're describing corruption. <laughs> <laughs> well, things like is, is that okay? Is that is that, is that okay? Oh, okay. <laughs> Apparently, in this day and age, it is okay. Corruption, yes. Yeah. Yes. right? <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, this is this is crazy, right? This, this is all the, the, again. I mean, this ties into the, this all sort of came about because of Pence's trip to Ireland in which he stayed. Oh, you, you think that's no good either? Island. <laughs> yes. Rather than I think they were meeting in Dublin and rather than like staying in Dublin, they stayed halfway across Ireland at Trump's resort and flew back and forth every day at tremendous cost. Um, he had family in the area. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, I mean, this is, but this is again the example of that new normal. I, I think this is going to be a big story. I think that, I mean, the House has already started launching investigations into this. But yeah, I mean, having the government, this is, you know, we've talked about the the problem with having foreign leaders stay at Trump resorts or Trump properties because it's essentially money in Trump's pocket. That's bad, right? That's in some indirect way bribery or in a direct way. Uh, but this, when the government, when the president <laughs> is using his power as president to direct funds to his own personal businesses. I mean, again, Jimmy Carter had to give up his peanut <laughs> farm. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> you know, it, it, you're right. It isn't just, I think the Pence story is really interesting as well, because Pence has denied this over and over and said, no, 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 no. I had family in the area. The other element is, is Bill Barr is spending $30,000 to stay at a Trump hotel or to throw a party at a Trump hotel, right? So you're seeing more and more of these incidents. It's in addition to the Saudis who spend millions 
Um, I, I remember not that long ago, like as a child, I remember there being massive stories, like big, big, like scandals when it came out that there was like some governmental party and they spent a whole lot of money on wine or caviar or whatever. Like the idea of governmental spending was like a, a thing. And now it just doesn't seem like we care. I mean, the, it's, yeah. But he drew on a map with a Sharpie, dude. We have more important things to talk about. So so is this okay, Nick? No, it's not okay. Realistically, no. In in no way is this okay. Yes, this is, if true, yeah. and I right. emphasize right. that. There could be more to it. Um, yeah, no, this is, this is blatant corruption. Um, having said that, these stories come out not only about the president, but members of Congress, um, you know, other government officials all the time uh, outside of the Trump administration on the left, too, uh, as oh, well yeah. as Republicans. I, yeah, the system itself is is corrupt to the bone at this point. Um, yeah. It, it, when something like this happens, there needs to be accountability. Um, and considering everybody seems to be involved with it, I'm not sure who is going to hold them accountable at this point. So often I think you're absolutely right, Nick. There's this corruption happens all the time, but usually it doesn't happen when the spotlight is on you. And Trump is unique in that way where he doesn't care, right? He, he knows what he's doing. He'll just deny it and say it's no big deal. Uh, normally, the, this stuff happens at the margins and we sure. don't really get much attention to it. But now it's clear that individuals have learned that this is to their benefit to, to frequent his properties and his airports and do this sort of stuff. I mean, the fact that the attorney general is spending $30,000 to throw a party at a Trump hotel – He's the top law and order person in the country just for the impression that this or the perception that this could look bad. He should not be doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've entered in a world where that doesn't matter anymore. So does it matter that there's a direct link to it or that you go through an intermediary who's connected with someone, but also throw a $30,000 party at, say, their hotel there, or it, Hamptons, you know, it's all bad. Palace it's or all, all bad. But this uh -huh. one, you're not even trying to disguise it. Right. That's the thing. I guess that's what doing it. You know, on the outs is no good. But but when you're not even trying, when Bill Barr is like, yeah, yeah, this is well, this is what I'm doing, mm -hmm. that that gets me. And the vice president, what a toady, right? I mean, just <laughs> God, a toady. Yeah, I, easy there. there. The, the, Doom bottle. <laughs> Sorry, but go ahead. Uh, <laughs> my doom no, bottle. I didn't really have anything to say. Um, I was just going to comment on the run-ins I've no. had with uh, with the business office at the various colleges yeah. I've worked at over the scrutiny they pay to the receipts I turn in, and then this shit happens. It's it's upsetting. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> This but is true. It's a like, real and, and debacle. <laughs> and there are organizations in the government whose whole job is to make sure this stuff doesn't happen, but it still happens. And at the highest level, it's okay. Makes me makes me upset, Nick. Yes. Do you follow the guy? Right. Do you follow the guy on Twitter? What's Walter? Um, he was the the Front former guy. head of the ethics commission. Shab, yeah, yeah, it's Walter yes. Shab. Do you follow him on Twitter? Yeah. You oh, can yes. feel like you can watch him. Like it feels like the poor guy is gonna, like his head's gonna explode as these stories come out. Right. This is he's a Republican appointee, and yeah, he's right. just so upset about all of this. He's like, "This is not normal. This is not normal." Let me repeat: This is not normal. He's, he's interesting to follow if you're, yeah, for, yeah. for listeners. Oh yeah. My God, Dune bottles. <laughs> Jesus. Um, <laughs> I said, "Didn't drop the f bomb." <laughs> hey, man, that's that's my job. You yeah. stay away from that. 
Uh, <laughs> well, if you guys like our, our dune boggle written conversations, <laughs> um, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics, uh, beers that we try you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android, uh, the podcasts, um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which if you weren't here at the beginning of the podcast, Predicted is a real money political prediction market where you can uh, buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh, Barstool Politics listeners who use the promo link when opening up a new account will receive up to a $20 match on their first deposit. Uh, so open up a $20 account and Predicted will match that $20. Give me $40 to use. Uh, just use the promo link, predicted.org slash promo slash Barstool Paul 20 uh, to give it a shot. Um, anything else, guys? I think we covered it all. Holy <laughs> shit, did we cover all this? was a big week. All right, well, we will see you guys next week, man. Cheers. Cheers.